I feel as though being here to finally watch this vaunted American Southwest Conference showdown that we've been waiting for for months and months, that maybe seems like the best use of my time. I had had half thoughts about maybe I should go to Allentown for Johns Hopkins against Muhlenberg. And I thought, well, if I'm going to travel this time of year, I really should see. I should knock somebody off the list, right? Somebody I've never seen before or in a place I've never been. It becomes a little more difficult to do that this time of year. Indeed. Indeed. I'm really hoping. I was hoping that. Chapman CMS would be a night game. That's really nice for me. It gets me the opportunity to watch everything during the day and then go for some nighttime sky act, but that's going to be an afternoon game. I might still go over to see that. That is the beauty of being an East coast pundit. Who's actually based in Los Angeles. Being in the West coast is great. I start my day with coffee, maybe a pastry of some sort. And Division Three football, and I can do it all day, 12 to 13 hours, and still get to bed by like 11, which is great. I'm appreciative of that, because if if you were up to 11, that means I would be up until 1, and I if I'm going to be up till 1 o'clock, it's going to be Sunday night when I edit the podcast. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. There have been 50 seasons of Division Three football. We've been covering it for 25 years. We've had a podcast since 2007. That's this one. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. The only podcast directly from the folks at D3Football.com. We are here every week all season, some weeks maybe more than once. That's because we live and breathe this stuff. I'm Patrick Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I write around the nation at D3Football.com. And Pat, in the words of the great contemporary philosopher John Bon Jovi, we're halfway there. <laughs> week eight, we made it. Yeah, your full season is 16 weeks, right? And if you are playing in week 16, we will see you. In Salem, Virginia, as you said, halfway there as we've gotten through week eight here, season 17, episode 13, we're going to talk about the big things that happen in week eight, including an upset that nobody picked because so many people are busy picking no upsets, myself included. So we'll talk about Gustavus and St. John's. We will talk with Gustavus head coach Peter Haugen about that game. We'll talk about big game in the North Coast Athletic Conference between DePaul and Wittenberg. We'll talk about lacrosse against Oshkosh and then we'll talk about all sorts of other things as we hand out game balls we do our stats of the week we talk about what's fun in the one who's pulling through in the two who's prompting glee in the three and that's what you missed yeah that's a thing on the d3football.com around the nation podcast can't go any further without talking about the folks who help make this edition of the podcast possible, as well as a good amount of the coverage that we do uh, on D3Sports.com, the websites. And that specifically is our friends over at D3Photography.com. They, of course, are the Bureau of Photographers, shall we say, whose work we license on a regular basis and have for more than a decade on D3Football.com, D3Hoops.com, D3Baseball.com. These are the folks across the country 
shooting photo galleries. If you want to join that group, drop us a note, drop them a note. They're always looking for more people, but this past weekend, you will find five new photo galleries on d3photography.com, a game we're going to talk about here coming up in just a moment. UW Lacrosse against UW Oshkosh. Johns Hopkins against your sinus. Big game out east. Rippon versus Lake Forest. You didn't think maybe that was going to be a big game. It was, and you can find the photos from that. UW Eau Claire versus UW Platteville and Concordia Moorhead versus McAllister. There's 17 photo galleries from games in October. 36 in September, those five weekends of September Division Three football, well represented on that platform. That's right, Pat. The crew at D3Photography.com, they are out there each and every Saturday getting professional images of games around Division Three football. I hope our listeners have, have they've seen some of that great work featured on D3Football.com from this weekend. In addition to some of those games from this weekend you might have seen on the website, there are literally hundreds of images from the big centennial conference matchup d3 photography crew is all over they're not just in the midwest capturing those images of your favorite teams and players if you're a fan an alum parent student athlete you're looking for high quality professional stills from those events you can get some at d3photography.com as an added bonus pat listeners to our podcast they can get 10 percent off of their order at d3photography.com by using the promo code D3Football when they check out. What more is there to say? There isn't. So go to D3Photography.com, look at the photos, use the coupon code D3Football, and thank you to D3Photography.com for sponsoring the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. All right, so if you go back, you know, 70 years or so into the small college football archives, the rivalry between Gustavus Adolphus and St. John's is pretty lopsided. One of the key questions that John Gillardi was famously asked when he was hired at St. John's was whether he ever thought the Johnnies could beat Gustavus. Could they ever beat Gustavus? One famous Johnny alum, an NFL Hall of Famer, said no. How about no? Over the years, of course, that flipped around. And now St. John's had won 23 of the past 24 meetings before Saturday when Gustavus took the lead with 2.43 left in the third quarter and nobody scored again. Lots of key moments in this, Greg, especially in the fourth quarter. But I want to go back to quarter number two, where the Gusties, who are named after King of Sweden, Gustavus Adolphus, not the windy days up on the hill in St. Peter, Minnesota. But they scored twice in the last two and a half minutes of the first half to take the lead into the locker room. A touchdown catch by Matthew Carrion. Then St. John's gets the ball back at its own 26. Carson Deckham comes up with a huge 12-yard coverage sack of Aaron Severson. And then on second and 22, Myshawn King breaks through, bats a pass down in the backfield. Johnny's end up punting. So Gustavus has a minute left to play with in this half. They throw a little underneath route that doesn't move the chains. Sandman gets sacked, and the clock is running. But then Sandman gets the next snap with 13 seconds left, connects on a big pass into Johnny territory. And with four seconds left, throwing into the wind, Sandman heaves it to the last inch, the last inch of the back of the end zone. And Caden Kleinschmidt hauls it in among multiple Johnny's defenders. Halftime score, Gustavus 24, St. John's 21. All right, Pat, so full disclosure here, I did not have this game on a screen until I caught the halftime score on the scoreboard. Well, this is the right time to bring you into this conversation, yet let's flex you into the conversation here. I see the Gusties, they've got a lead here at halftime. It's a high-scoring game, and that's the kind of game that I thought you'd have to see for Gustavus to be in a position to spring an upset. We've seen the Johnnies, they've been susceptible at times to the pass, and so Gustavus, they took advantage of that. They're able to get a bunch of points on the board. Definitely sets the table for an exciting second half. 
And that's before I knew about how the Mayak counts divisional wins. We're going to pick that up in a minute, but there's a whole second half to go. That's right. Gustavus gets the ball to start the second half, and they score right away. They go up 10. St. John's responds. The team's trade another set of touchdowns to make it 38-35. And from there, we're just going to go straight into Fast Five, where we'll talk with Gustavus coach Peter Haugen about the key decision by St. John's in the third quarter and then the big defensive plays in the fourth. See you all, man. See you all, man. See you all, man. Now on Fast Five, joined by Peter Haugen, the head coach at Gustavus, his team victorious on Saturday against St. John's. Uh, coach, tell us a little bit about how that feels, doing that in front of your home fans especially. Yeah, Pat, thanks for having us on. You know, it felt great. Uh, it was a great day, beautiful fall day, um, and a uh, great crowd out there. And so, you know, uh, both teams played really hard. We came out on top. Uh, really a great football game. Uh, people who have paid close attention to the podcast for the past several months probably understand that I now have a daughter, Edgar Davis. But I know also that this was uh, fall break for them, too. So uh, a little less student turnout, perhaps? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, had had we not had fall break, it probably would have been packed in there. But still, uh, even with the fall break, um, really a good crowd. You know, St. John's travels really well. Um, our, our fan base was there. And so uh, really thankful for that. All right. I would not have predicted coming into the game that you guys would have won. You guys would have scored three touchdowns through the air and Jake Breitbach wouldn't have caught any of them. Tell us a little bit about not only Jake, but the diversity that you guys have in that uh, passing offense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a group of guys that, that are talented, no doubt. And, and uh, you know, Jake has certainly gotten a lot of attention and, and, and rightfully so. He's had a terrific year. Uh, played at a very high level um, you know I think again had 10 catches uh, yesterday and for over 100 yards and and so you know did some really good stuff out there but uh, yeah the supporting cast and, and it's just a good group of receivers uh, running backs and, and kind of anchored by a uh, an offensive line that's that has some experience and and, and George Sandman kind of spreading the ball around so um, you know great opportunity to see you know not just Jake but uh, other guys uh uh, making plays. I think defensively too, right? You guys uh, had a couple of big plays down on the goal line in the closing minutes. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, guys, uh, I don't know about confidence, but their demeanor in that situation, especially considering how the Augsburg game went a few weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, we had really tough losses late, late in games against Augsburg and Bethel. Um, and uh, and so now we were in this same situation here on uh, on Saturday yesterday, and and so um, you know our guys really came up big in some really key moments, and and that's what you have to have for sure. It's a it's a sign of growth for us, you know, that uh, uh, maybe not being able uh, to make those plays a few weeks ago, and then and then being able to to make those plays in, in key moments uh, yesterday was big. All right, you guys are in the driver's seat now in the Northwoods division of this conference. Winning out gets you the opportunity to play for the automatic bid, whether that's a rematch against Bethel or maybe somebody else coming out of the skyline. What's the message to the team now going into these next couple of weeks? You know, I think it has to be the same as it was when we were when we when we lost those two games. Is that you, you can't really get caught up in the results. You have to get really dialed into getting better. Um, there's things that we did yesterday that we'll just have to be better at this week. You know, we're playing uh, Saint Olaf, the, and, and they've had a really nice year. And and Carlton, you know, I think they're uh, you know like six and one right now or something like that. And 
And so we're just going to have to continue to play well. Um, and I, you know, that was really the message when we were struggling and when we had those really difficult losses, you know, you can, you can kind of carry your self-esteem uh, on winning and losing, and that's really a dangerous place to go. And so you just have to get better. You have to get back at it. And so, you know, tomorrow it'll be trying to identify, you know, what did we do well and, and where did we struggle and, and, and what has to get better this week? Because uh, in our league, there's a lot of parity, a lot of good football teams, uh, a lot of good coaches. And uh, so we'll have to, we'll have to put our best foot forward this week. Were you surprised that St. John's passed up the opportunity to try to tie the game with that field goal when they had the chance to at the end of the third quarter? You know, honestly, we're just more focused on our guys and in the moment of what we're doing. And and so I, you know, didn't really think about it a ton. It, you know, in, in this day and age of football, you, you see the, you see more and more teams going for it in those situations. So actually not as surprised as maybe some people would think. And, you know, uh, the other thing on Saturday is there was a ton of wind. I mean, the wind was blowing northwest winds at 18 miles an hour. Or so, you know, just throwing the kicking unit out there and 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 thinking that it's an automatic, um, probably not yesterday because uh, that that wind was blowing. So I'm not sure, you know, you know what what went into their decision making, but it, to me it wasn't totally unusual uh, given the circumstances. All right, Greg, you referenced this a few minutes ago. The way that the pairings are determined for the championship game in the NIAC in week 11 is not by overall conference record. It is just by those four divisional games, which makes this game and this win for Gustavus so much more important, meaningful, impactful. One reason why I didn't have a screen on this game is because St. John's is two games ahead of Gustavus in the in the uh, Mayak win-loss column and so I'm like this could be an interesting game Gustavus may win maybe spring an upset it was possible but it doesn't change the standings much in the Mayak and then I found out later it certainly does and so this win is actually monumental in that now Gustavus Adolphus controls the Northwoods division I believe yep and if they win both of their last two games against St. Olaf and Carlton they even have they can even lose one of those I believe they could uh, well be the representative in the Mayak championship game from the Northwoods division. St. John's, they'll get a compensatory game in week 11, I guess. Compensatory Some other crossover game. game. Probably Augsburg again, I would think. Whoever is second in the Skyline division, with looking like Bethel is going to be the team out of that division that uh, plays in that title game. Yes, but... The point here is that St. John's probably not going to play for a Mayak championship, probably will definitely will not be qualifying through pool A. And now we have to look at the Johnnies in, in pool C and will a second game against Augsburg get them the primary criteria oomph that they need to get into pool C. Yeah. And I think when you look at like Bethel last year, right? Bethel with two losses, both of them to St. John's. I suspect that, you know, if you're a human being on that committee looking at that sort of thing, you're like, yeah, I mean, right. They lost to the best team in the region twice. I get that, right? It might be as though Bethel were more seen like a team with one and a half losses or something like that, right? St. John's doesn't have that benefit. They will have the benefit of a regionally ranked win against Trinity. They will have another regionally ranked result, a loss against UW-Whitewater. But their strength of schedule is not going to be 
as high as Bethel was, I assume, at that point of the year because they won't get that extra boost, like you said, and they definitely will not have had two losses against the same team and definitely not two losses both to regionally ranked opponents. It's And, of course, we have one less at-large bid to hand out this year. Yes, the underpinning point to all of that is Johnny's postseason very much in doubt right now. All right, Greg, so there's still 16 unbeaten teams in Division Three football. We'll at least be guaranteed to lose another one this week because a couple of them play head-to-head. And uh, DePaul is one of those teams that keeps chugging along and keeps winning games. They sure do. The NCAC has reached the pivotal part of the season and the last remaining conference unbeatens, DePaul and Wittenberg. They played an absolute classic in Springfield on Saturday. Wittenberg ended the first half emphatically with a 65-yard interception return for a touchdown to give Wittenberg a 24-14 halftime lead. I can't say Tigers here because that doesn't help, so I'm going to repeat Wittenberg over and over. Seriously. Wittenberg extended that lead to 27 to 14 with a third quarter field goal. And then the comeback was on DePaul scored on fourth quarter drives of 77 yards capped by a 34 yard Robbie Ballantyne touchdown reception, 75 yard drive ended with a three yard Gabe Quigley touchdown run. And then a 60 yard drive capped with a Nathan McCahill two yard run. That last score came with one minute and 41 seconds to play and tied the score at 35 to 35. Now, curiously here, Wittenberg, they start their drive with 134 left in the game. They've got two timeouts, and they rush twice through the middle and take a knee to send the game to overtime. Very conservative there, Pat. Yeah, very conservative, right? You get those runs up the middle, but they go for nine yards, and then on third and one, you kneel down, and they took 90 seconds to get from that first down to that third down. Very curious. In the overtime session... Wittenberg, they get the ball first. They complete a pass for a loss of two yards. Then they throw three straight incomplete passes, I guess too far to try a field goal. It was a little wet and rainy in Springfield on the day, so maybe not the best time for four long field goals, but they can they throw three incomplete passes. That ends their overtime with zero points. DePaul, they now have all of the game's momentum. They hand the ball off six consecutive times to Caden Whitehead. The last of those, two-yard touchdown run and the walk-off win for DePaul. DePaul, they stay perfect on the season. They're 8-0, 6-0 in conference play. Wittenberg slides back to 5-2. They're 4-1 in conference play. Wittenberg really now no opportunity to win the conference's automatic bid. Even if they beat Wabash next week and Wabash beats DePaul in week 11, DePaul owns that head-to-head tie break. Wabash has a set, would, would have a second loss and be out. It wouldn't be a three-way tie situation. You'd need DePaul to lose another game. Yes, which is not going to happen. I think they play... Kenyon. Right. The teams that they could have lost to, they've basically already played except for the game coming up against Wabash. Correct. And so now we have a situation where DePaul is just a Monon Bell win away from an NCAC three-peat. Really impressive comeback for DePaul. The defense, they got rattled early. They gave up some big plays, but they really clamped down in the second half and the fourth quarter and overtime in particular. DePaul, 41 to 35 winners in overtime at Wittenberg and now in sole possession of first place in the North Coast. Greg, is the North Coast better when Wittenberg is good, or is it just more interesting? The North Coast is better when Wittenberg is good, right? Wittenberg is one of the all-time winningest programs in Division Three. They definitely have a significant place in the history of the division, so when Wittenberg is good, the North Coast feels a little more visible to me. 
I don't think that I'm talking bad about the league here when I say there are not teams right now that are as prominent as the Wittenberg and Wabash teams of the 2000s and 2010s that could occasionally play into the quarterfinal round. But the top four in the conference right now are, they're a bit more tightly clustered, which makes for an exciting conference race. The next step for the NCAC championship is good for the NCAC champion is going to be to win a big playoff game against a ranked team or a champion from a higher ranked conference. By my measure, the last time the NCAC won a game like that, it was Wittenberg's four overtime win at Thomas Moore back in the first round of the 2016 playoffs. So it's, it's been a while since the NCAC won a big game outside of its own conference. And, you know, if you want to know, why the top 25 is not really welcoming to the NCAC right now. That That's pretty much it. It's been a long time since they've won a game that is relevant outside of the conference. Yeah, the NCAC definitely had that opportunity last year. They went to Carnegie Mellon, the champion of a conference that is above it in the pecking order, but still, you know, solidly in the middle of the pack, not a power conference. And they lost to Carnegie Mellon 45 to 14. One more game to touch on here at the top of the show. UW Lacrosse hanging on against UW Oshkosh. Lacrosse, of course, coming off of a win a couple of weeks ago against UW Whitewater, survived against Platteville, and now got another test against Oshkosh. Greg, one of my favorite parts of this game, and, and you know, a lot of other games this season, is when a team gets the ball back after the opponent scores and just runs out the clock. This is the Keith McMillan special, right? You get the ball back and you you go for it. You never let the other team get the ball back. And that's what lacrosse did for the last 423 on Saturday. And Kaiser Helterbrand all the way, right? They ran him eight times for 55 yards on that final drive before the final two kneel downs. Oshkosh used all three of its timeouts, but just couldn't get a stop on the Eagles and on Helterbrand. Twice lacrosse came out of Oshkosh timeouts and converted first downs. One was Helterbrand running 22 yards on a second and four. They just came out in this kind of old school set you got a tight end left. You got two flankers on that side as lead blockers. And Helterbrand goes left, turns the quarter, and he's not touched until he's well downfield. Yeah, lacrosse in that situation, they're just not going to get beat with their second best play, right? They're going to give the ball to their main guy, Kaiser Helterbrand. He has been, honestly, Pat, game ball candidate every single week this year. He's been so good. And, yeah, it's it's – Winning time for the Eagles and Matt Janice is just going to give Kaiser Helterbrand the ball and say, get those first downs, keep the clock going. Let's not give it back to Kobe Berghammer. Eagles did a great job here. They got a lead early. Oshkosh came back a couple of times, constantly sort of pulling back from down 10 to down three, but never could get the ball back down three. Uh, and, you know, credit the Eagles for always having an answer. And yeah, lacrosse is now one in consecutive weeks at Whitewater, at Platteville, and now staved off Oshkosh at home and looking forward to showdown with River Falls in a couple of weeks. I have a feeling that if all else were equal, it would be a great battle, quote unquote, in the balloting for the WIAC all-conference team as to whether Helterbrand or Berghammer is your top quarterback. If if lacrosse goes on and win the, wins the conference, Obviously, don't expect anything other than Helterbrand, but his line on Saturday, 17 carries for 145 yards and a touchdown, 13 to 20 passing for 203 yards and two touchdowns. I mean, Berghammer on the other side, man, 
32 of 45 for 337. He threw three touchdowns. He ran for 23 yards and another TD. He was not intercepted on the day. I only have four All-American quarterback slots, and I can think of another five or six guys I want to try to uh, squeeze onto that team, but here are two of them we're talking about right now. Two here, another one in the WIAC, Caleb Blaha, another fantastic player. Yeah. Yeah, you could do a lot of damage on the All-American team just with WIAC quarterbacks. Can I imagine our Region 6 All-Region team that might not have room for Aaron Severson or Blake Eaton? Well, that's something to think about later. And we've been talking about quarterbacks for the last couple of minutes. And we also had earlier this season a set of features on quarterbacks on D3Football.com. And at that time, I promised slash threatened slash promised defense week. Defense week is coming. Defense week, my friends, is here. I've already got two of these features in the can ready to run out this week. We have a plethora, a veritable cornucopia of defensive player features six of them in fact which is impressive because we really only have three writers so defense this week justin blazik of uw platteville robert Corey of carnegie mellon owen grover of wartburg caleb harmel of trinity texas rossi moore of mount union and luke sherman of johns hopkins frank is going to tell me later that i didn't get the johns hopkins guy's name pronounced correctly but those are the people who you will see Featured on the site this week, so looking forward to that. All of that is helped in part by you, the Patreon donors and Patreon subscribers. We haven't done a big extended promo of that over the course of the past several weeks, but to learn more about it, go to patreon.com slash d3sports. We really appreciate that small amount or sometimes large amount of monthly support. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls. And my game ball is going to go to Eric Lyons Jr. Lyons came up with two big plays on the goal line for Gustavus on Saturday in that win against St. John's. First, he broke up a pass on first and goal from the seven with two minutes left that otherwise Dylan Wheeler would have hauled in for a go-ahead touchdown. Lyons just misses a game-sealing interception on that play. But the next snap comes from the 12 after a false start penalty. Lyons sees Big Johnny's tight end Alex Larson coming his way. The pass is underthrown. Lions cuts in front of it, cuts in front of Larson in the end zone, dives and makes the catch. Here's what Peter Haugen had to say about it. Yeah, no question about it, Eric. Uh, a, young, a young man who's just loved and adored by our players, plays extremely hard. I don't think I've seen him drop a ball <laughs> all fall, and uh, he had that opportunity and uh, that he that he did drop, and, and that would have probably honestly been a pick six. It, it he, he broke on that ball, and it just went through his hands, and then uh, – Fast forward, uh, actually two plays later, there was a play that uh, I think they had an offside, and then really technically the next play, you know, he comes up and makes a, a huge play uh, and breaks on the ball and makes a great catch in the end zone. Uh, um, and just really, you know, really proud of him and his resiliency and the group of guys just really, uh, you know, kind of um, rallying around him. Pat, I'm also going defense for my game ball. And University of New England senior linebacker Dylan Ibbotson Ibbotson had seven tackles on the day, including two and a half tackles for loss, as well as a 50-yard punt block return for a crucial score in the University of New England's 19-13 win over Curry. The Nor'easters played through a Nor'easter in Milton, Massachusetts to notch their program high sixth win of the season. And for his game-leading efforts on defense and special teams, Dylan Ibbotson gets my game ball. 
That's not my stat. Also, not gonna be my stat. Not my stat. But that may be the most incredible stat. My stat of the week, Springfield 13 for 16 on third down conversions, and then they converted two more of those on fourth down in a 31 to 21 win against Salve Regina. Time of possession for the Pride, 37 minutes and 58 seconds. Notable drives in this game include the Pride going 97 yards in 18 plays, taking 9.50 off the clock in the second quarter, a drive that included four third down conversions. Springfield also ran out the last six and a half minutes of this game with a 10-point lead, getting all the way to the Salve seven-yard line before kneeling the ball out to win the game. And here's the kicker. Uh, literally, here's the kicker. The only time Springfield went to third down and did not eventually convert a first down or reach the end zone was late in the second quarter when Salve stopped Springfield on a third and goal from the 12, and Springfield brought out All-American kicker Christian Hutra for a chip shot field goal to make it 17 to nothing. On Saturday, Salisbury defeated Rowan by a score of 35 to 20. In doing so, Salisbury completed zero passes for zero yards, which is always a fun stat, but is not my stat of the week. Salisbury had two players, Joey Bildstein and David Fletcher, each run for over 100 yards, but that is also not my stat. The victory does mark a significant milestone for head coach Sherman Wood. This is his 200th career win as a head coach. 200 wins is a major accomplishment for college coaches, and only 12 active head coaches have reached that milestone. Congratulations to Sherman Wood on win number 200. That is my stat of the week. And it's only three active coaches in Division Three, Greg. We've seen a lot of veteran coaches retire or otherwise get shown the door in recent years. So folks such as Rick Giancola, Pete Fredenberg, Larry Kinbaum, Joe Fincham, Mike Maynard are no longer on the active list. And of course, no longer are the late Jim Margraff and Mike Drass. Bethel coach Steve Johnson leads active Division Three football coaches with 249 career wins, followed by Illinois Wesleyan's Norm Esch with 227. Paul Vosberg at St. John Fisher could be next as he is sitting at 195. We go region by region to spotlight more stories in this podcast every week. And so in region one, we ask who's getting it done in the one and getting it done in the one this week, as it has for 49 previous weeks is Delaware Valley Aggies finding a way to keep surviving, keep battling out in the Mac week after week as they defeated Lebanon Valley on Saturday for their 50th consecutive conference win with 114 left Delval missed a 27 yard field goal that was short and wide right but Delval still had all three of its timeouts left and forced the Dutchman to punt with 59 seconds remaining the Aggies took over at Lebval's 44 and all day they have struggled on offense all day less than 100 yards passing entering this possession Luan Obada was open on a big route over the middle and suddenly Delval was on the 10 yard line with 19 seconds left and here's what it sounded like with Gordon Mann on the call for Delaware Valley Athletics. Jack Fallon in the game. I don't know that they would chance trying to run it. Shaman out to the near side. Barrios drops back. Quick throw across the middle. It's caught. Touchdown! Touchdown! Lawan Avdaya! The streak is alive! Twenty to seventeen, Del Val. After that horribly missed field goal attempt, Gordon, who's a good friend of ours, he's the unsung hero of D3Hoops.com. He was already writing the epitaph for the Aggies' streak, but then Del Val got it done in the one on Saturday, and they improved to six and one overall with a twenty-one seventeen victory. 
Yeah, Gordon may have delivered the hit of the game with a uh, audible, audible bug squash in the fourth quarter. There, that was not in the clip that we played. However, we spared you that. Gallaudet is staying hot, and they've gotten it done in the one for the third straight week. This time, running literally to a thirty-eight to twenty-four win over Alfred State. Lots of superlatives here, Pat. Gallaudet won this game without throwing a pass, which they also did against Alfred State last year. And in fact, Gallaudet hasn't thrown a pass against Alfred State since the fourth quarter of their game in 2021. Often when you see option teams go all run, no pass, you might see 10 or 12 players get carries. Not this week. Gallaudet's entire offensive box score contains just four players. Micah Harvey, Brandon Washington, Zach Parsons, and Drayvon McCall. McCall had just 63 rush yards at halftime, Pat, but in the last 16 minutes of the game, Alfred State forgot about Dre. As he ran for 121 yards and two touchdowns in the last quarter and a bit to give the Bison their 14-point win. The Bison, they stand at 2-0 in ECFC play and in sole possession of first place with Anna Maria and Dean left on their regular season schedule. Crazy to look at that box score and see so few names in that part of the box. I'm going to give you a real Gallaudet deep cut, Greg. One of the things I learned when I was working there back in the mid-90s was about this men's basketball team that played for Gallaudet in 1943, who they called the Iron Five. I'm not sure how many players actually played for Gallaudet in that season, but it was basically just the five guys, and they won the Mason-Dixon Conference title, which is one of the greatest seasons in Gallaudet men's basketball history. So apparently, relying on very few players, occasionally we'll get it done for you. Greg, who's pulling through in the two? Susquehanna is pulling through in the two, and they are cruising through the Landmark Conference, having won their first four conference games by a combined score of 209-28. to The Riverhawks are 8-0. They have just two regular season games left. Next week, they'll travel to fellow Landmark unbeaten Moravian, where a win will seal up the first landmark conference football championship for Susquehanna and a return trip to the NCAA tournament. Susquehanna unbeaten in the landmark. Not a surprise. Moravian unbeaten in the landmark. Surprise. 3-0 and in the league. 4-3 and overall. Good year and a good conference shift for the Greyhounds. Carnegie Mellon is also pulling through in the two, Greg, trying to keep their hopes of a playoff bid alive. Pulling through and then also pulling away in the first half as CMU jumped out to a 32-7 lead despite failing to convert three PATs in the first quarter. Will Bauma had a career night at running back and, and taking direct snaps, and W&J didn't really have a way to stop him as he rushed for 149 yards, which is a career high, and more than three times what he's run for in any game this season. And this is against a conference contender. He ran for five touchdowns. That's a program record. Those are the five touchdowns. Carnegie Mellon 35, W&J 14. Pat, who is prompting glee in the three? The fun things in the three this weekend came on Saturday night when Hendricks and Rhodes played in War Memorial Stadium in Little Rock, Arkansas. If you've been watching Division Three football all day, like, like Greg, for example, like I do, you tuned in this game and you noticed something different right away because it's a big stadium. It's the one that Arkansas Razorbacks play in. And the camera angles on the broadcast make it look real big time, right? You've got really high cameras. And you're not going to get that at Rhodes. You're not going to get that at Hendricks. These things really catch your attention. The camera work and the production were great because it was the in-house team for the stadium. And they had a great finish to show. 
as Hendricks scored twice in the final 10 minutes to take a 50-43 to lead. But Rhodes wasn't done. They came back to score on a touchdown pass from Houston Wilhelm to Brent Barlow with 21 seconds left, cutting the lead to 50-49 to and setting up decision time for the Lynx. When they came out for the two-point conversion attempt, this is what it sounded like. Play action. Going to throw to the left side. Nobody's there. Incomplete. Hendricks is going to win the ball game. Barlow wanted pass interference. He's not going to get it. The throw wasn't close enough, and now they're going to throw a flag on Barlow. The throw was not there. It was close, but Barlow, as you'll see, backed up. They threw. Barlow wasn't there. He's trying to come around. He thought he was held. And that's your ball game. Hendricks wins 50-49. After dying by the two-point conversion sword in week five against Sewanee, they live by the famous two-point conversion sword this week. Hendricks at three and four, heading to Barry next week. Greg, I know you like some two-point conversion attempts when the game is on the line. I do. Really happy to see Rich Duncan go for it there. Didn't quite make it, but, you know, he played for the win on the road, which is, I guess, what you're supposed to do. Pat, when I think about Glee and Region 3, you can really only talk about Washington and Lee. Or maybe Suwanee, but this week it's Washington and Lee. The Generals rallied from an early 14-0 deficit to win 21-17 at Hampton-Sydney. Generals quarterback Stephen Murren rolled out and scrambled 24 yards for the go-ahead touchdown with 5.04 to play. Hampton-Sydney had two more opportunities to win the game, but the Generals' defense stood tall, sacking Andrew Puzzinelli three times on the final two drives. Washington and Lee stays undefeated in ODAC play, setting up a pivotal showdown with Randolph-Macon in Ashland next week. Washington and Lee, of course, was the last team in the ODAC to beat Randolph-Macon. That was 15 ODAC games ago on a memorable walk-off touchdown in 2021. Stephen Murren's still around. Greg, who's looking for more in the four? What the four, by four's four. The MIAA is looking for more in the four, as in more drama. Despite Albion's earlier loss to Hope, the Britons remained on track to force a winner-take-all game against Alma at Sprinkle Sprandle Stadium in Week 11. Trine, they didn't much care about that late-season drama as the Thunder clapped Albion hard in the first half, jumping out to a 28-7 first-half lead and then hanging on to win 35-28. Thunder quarterback Alex Price was 14-19 for 19 in the game with 298 yards and two touchdowns. Albion falls to 1-2 and two in MIAA play, and as Alma already has wins over one-loss rivals Trine and Hope, the Scots, with wins over Olivet and Adrian in the next two weeks, will have wrapped up the MIAA's automatic bid before that Week 11 game with Albion even kicks off. We have gotten such a late start to recording this podcast, Greg, that I would love to just have a drop of you saying Sprinkle Sprandle Stadium because I think it's a good half dozen times over the course of the past few years. Um, but that might have to wait for a future week. Mount St. Joseph and Rose Holman, they're looking for more in the four as well, looking for a chance to get back to the playoffs. These two look to be on a collision course for a conference championship game in week 11, and they continued to cement those chances as Mount St. Joe beat Hanover 52-27, and Rose Holman won at Franklin 50-35 on Saturday. MSJ and Rose Holman are both unbeaten in Heartland Collegiate Athletic Conference play, and Franklin is the only other team with fewer than two conference losses. That could change when Franklin goes to Mount St. Joe this upcoming Saturday. Greg, who's showing drive in the five. Mumbo number five. Elmhurst is showing some drive in the five, Pat. 
Elmhurst scored two fourth quarter touchdowns to take a 27-21 lead with just under four minutes left in the game against Milliken. Milliken drove 67 yards in just four plays to tie the game at 27-27 with just 116 to play. The point after touchdown is pivotal, and here is the call from Jason Doro at Blue Jay TV. Extra points have been no sure thing today, though, especially into this wind. David Ramirez on to attempt this PAT. A junior from West Lafayette, Indiana. He's had a couple of field goals today. And the kick's blocked. It's on the ground. Still loose. Now picked up by Talon West. West with a blocker in front of him. Sprinting up the near sideline. West into the end zone. The ultimate reversal for Elmhurst. They block the PAT and return it for two points to go up 29-27. And in just a flash, Elmhurst goes from an almost certain one-point deficit to a two-point lead. I can't remember when I've seen a defensive point after touchdown come this late in a game. So exciting. Sophomore linebacker Ator Agbenya scored twice in this one, once on a punt block return and once on a sack fumble recovery for the Blue Jays. This is Elmhurst's second win of the season and is the first time Elmhurst has hit two wins in a season since 2017. First-year head coach Mike Murray has Elmhurst turned around and heading in the right direction in just his first year. Greg, mine is more of a nosedive in the five. I'd gotten a tip back in the third week of September that there was a staff shakeup at the University of Chicago, and while you know you never see anything official or even anything on the coaching websites and the feeds, it looked official that the Maroons lost three coaches on the offensive side of the ball. Offensive coordinator Spencer Emerson, offensive assistants Paul Escalante and Kevin Tang are no longer with the program. Under second-year head coach Todd Gilchrist, Chicago lost to Cornell College 47-34 on Saturday, and that's the first win for Cornell in the series since 1981. You know, I saw that result, Pat, and I kind of jumped back. I'm like, I didn't look it up. I didn't know when was the last time Cornell beat Chicago. Seems like it would have been a long time. I didn't. I wouldn't have thought 1981 was the number, but wow, that's a really, really impressive result for Cornell. Yeah, I knew we would probably never see anything other than just a quiet change of the names of coaches on the website. So I took a screenshot of the page as it appeared in late September, and then yesterday's results reminded me it had been a couple of weeks since I'd checked on it. Pat, who is in the mix in the six? Six feet, six, six feet, six feet, six, six feet. In the UMAC, in the six, it looks like the conference race will come down to Northwestern of Minnesota and Minnesota Morris. That's who's in the mix in this five-game conference schedule. Northwestern won at Greenville 32-12 on Saturday as the Eagles racked up 10 tackles for loss, while Morris defeated Westminster and Missouri in a non-conference game on Saturday. That's the Cougars' second consecutive win against Westminster. Frankly, Greg... Also, stat of the week fodder. How often do you have two consecutive wins in the same season against the same team? But uh, when Finlandia closed this past offseason, the UMAC just added an extra conference opponent as a non-conference game to fill out everyone's schedule. And because of the way the schedule was made up, this put Morris against Westminster two weeks in a row. In the game that actually counted for the conference standings nine days ago, Morris won 45 to nothing. I had wondered what that was about. I didn't know if that was a schedule glitch. We were in the matrix. I don't know what happened there. I'm glad I've got closure on why Morris and Westminster went back to back. It's real and it's spectacular. 
there's still a lot of teams in the mix in the Sky Act, but perhaps the favorite is a team that may have been written off after their 0-3 start, Chapman. The Panthers have won their last three Sky Act games, and they're now 3-2 and in conference play, one game behind surf division rival Claremont Mudscripts. Remember that Chapman started this win streak with a pretty dominant 20-7 win over CMS just a few weeks ago. The Panthers, they've been cycling through quarterbacks, but their third starter this season, Luke Peterman, he was a serviceable 11 for 16 for 152 yards and a touchdown. But the Panthers are really doing it with defense. They've forced 12 turnovers during this three-game win streak. Sophomore defensive back Colin Keefe has led that effort with three interceptions in the last two games. And yes, if you're connecting the dots here between Chapman and Keefe and defensive excellence, Colin is indeed the younger brother of Chapman's All-American linebacker, Dylan Keefe. Mm. Chapman makes the trip up to Claremont this week, Pat, for a return game with CMS, one that I really wish was under the lights, but I'll probably try to get myself over to Zinda Field on Saturday afternoon and watch that one in person. Well, it's not some glitch in the Matrix. I think Greg said that for the second time on this podcast as well. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. All right, we open up that mailbag. Lots of good questions on X this week. Uh, we'll probably have another opportunity to use some of those in an upcoming episode. And uh, you can see more of your questions from previous weeks in Greg's Around the Nation column from this past week. Go look that up. Big mailbag. And this is from Fordham Orsman or Forsman, F-O-A-R-S-M-A-N, asking, are coaches undercutting their program's long-term competitiveness with over-reliance on fifth years now? Younger players don't get the experience they normally would and will hit the field not as well prepared. Is this also leading to attrition in juniors and seniors? And Greg, I thought this was an interesting question that we probably don't have the answer to, but it was worthy of discussion in talking with coaches about their five-year guys. They know that the tap for that essentially turns off after this season and things will have an adjustment period. Interested though, I think you think juniors and seniors who are sitting second on the depth chart to fifth years, are they leaving programs? Is that's what that's what attrition would be. I don't know if we're seeing a lot of transfer activity, I guess, from juniors and seniors who are waiting their turn. I know sort of anecdotally, as I've you talk to coaches about fifth year seniors and how that looks and sort of uh, what the transition into this sort of period of time where we have the the COVID year and how that transition out of it is going to look. Most of what I get summarizing just sort of a number of different uh, inputs that I've got from coaches, it's something that they have to manage with communication with recruits. And that's what they've been doing for the last couple of years. It's like, hey, we've got, you know, a number of guys that we think will be back for a fifth year and it might mean that your turn in the in the too deep might take an extra year to get there coaches also don't always know who's coming back for a fifth year in division three it's not if you come back for a fifth year that's a that's a significant financial decision for a lot of families and student athletes and so it's not given that everybody's going to come back for a fifth year and so a lot of times they don't know until after a season is over after a recruiting cycle has finished uh, who might come back and who might not. So um, are, are, I guess to answer the question, are schools or teams sort of hindering their future 
by relying on fifth year seniors or having a number of fifth year seniors on their on their rosters? I think no. I think everybody has to manage it the same way. And I think that cycling out of the COVID year seniors will affect everybody more or less the same way. Yeah, that fifth year cliff year is coming up in just a little bit. It's a really intriguing question, though, and that's the kind of question I really want us to be able to tackle in the mailbag. So thank you to Fordham Orsman for raising that question on X. Also saw that you asked about it in the comments on the top 25 page. And we gave you a brief answer there, but a little bit more in depth here. So thank you for that. You can have your question considered for answering here on the show or perhaps in a future column or in a future show. Just hit us up. Use the D3FB hashtag when you see that message go out on Sunday afternoons. For games to watch, looking ahead next week at week nine, nine weeks of this Division Three football season will be in the books by the time next week finishes. And I'm looking at number eight, Johns Hopkins at number 21, Muhlenberg. So Johns Hopkins and Muhlenberg, they've gotten a little more separated in our top 25 poll than they probably should be. Muhlenberg buried underneath. The little stack of Ithaca, Endicott, Harden, Simmons, that sort of thing. And Johns Hopkins has floated up as teams ahead of them have lost. I think they're a lot closer together than this suggests. And we're going to learn a little more about them when this game comes up on Saturday. Joe Rapetti continues to be efficient in his second season at quarterback for the Mules. And he has had four games this season where he's completed more than 70% of his passes. And also he's had four games where he's run for more than 60 yards. Bay Harvey, his first season behind center for the Blue Jays, really doesn't sound all that different. And it should be a fun day and obviously a result that is super meaningful between two unbeaten teams. And I'm looking forward to that on Saturday afternoon in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I wish our listeners could see Pat showing me with his hands how how far he thinks the distance between Hopkins and Muhlenberg is in the poll. Yeah. Pat, my game to watch this week is going to be number 23, Mary Harden-Baylor at number 20, Harden-Simmons. This one has been circled since before the season started, but the context around the game is way different than we thought it was going to be before the season started. These two ASC rivals, they've been front and center in our storylines this season from Mary Harden-Baylor's 0-3 start to Harden-Simmons loss at Endicott and then a few weeks of kind of pedestrian football since... UMHB, they seem to have settled in with Isaac Bay at quarterback, and they have a pretty easy time of things in ASC play so far. Harden-Simmons, they've got Galen Glenn back from injury, and they looked much more like the team that was ranked in the top 10 earlier this season in their 55-7 win at Sol Ross State this past weekend. Mary Harden-Baylor, they've won 20 of the last 21 in this series. I genuinely have no idea what to expect on Saturday. Neither team has really played high-caliber opponents since those losses that had everybody's attention, and the comparative ASC results are more or less a wash. So for UMHB, all of their playoff marbles are on this game. Harden-Simmons, they could have an outside chance at an at-large bid if they lose, but I mean very outside. This game is likely going to determine the ASC's one playoff entrant, and it should be a pretty intense matchup between a couple of teams that they got to feel like they've got a lot to prove still this season. And the postseason is where is where redemption lies for these teams. Two big screens side by side. I think that's what you got to watch on Saturday. And of course, the other 112 games also.
This week in On The Spot, Pat, we're going to play a game called Seeing Red. Okay. Oh, yeah, this is going to be good. I have picked out games featuring all of the teams in the division that have red in their mascot names somewhere. And I need you to tell me what the overall record for our red teams in Division 3 are going to be. So our games are Cortland, the Red Dragons. They are at Hartwick. Dennis and the Big Red, they're on a bye, so you don't have to worry about them. Dickinson, the Red Devils, they are at Gettysburg in the Centennial Conference. Eureka, the Red Devils, they are hosting Concordia, Wisconsin. Montclair, they're the Red Hawks. They are hosting Rowan and Rippin, also the Red Hawks, hosting Monmouth. So we'll see if I end up in the red or in the black. Wait, maybe this week being in the red will be good. All right. So Cortland with a W, that seems pretty easy. Denison with the bye, I think I'm going to leave that as is. Dickinson over Gettysburg. Obviously, Dickinson sees its Centennial Conference chances dashed this past weekend against Muhlenberg. But I think they'll recover, pick up the pieces, and not come out flat when they go to Gettysburg. Man, the Red Devils of Eureka, they had a couple of good seasons there. This doesn't seem to be one of them. So I'm going to pick Red to lose here. I'm going to put my money on Black over here for Concordia, Wisconsin. And I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to put my money on Brown or Gold for Rowan over Montclair. And, you know, Rippon with a big win this past week. Obviously, great win for them. This is probably the only place that we mentioned this game where they beat Lake Forest and turned around and played the shutout card on Lake Forest the way Lake Forest has done to many teams this year. But I don't think that continues this week. I see Monmouth taking that one. So I guess that means that my Reds go two and three. Two and three for our Red Division Three teams. All right, Greg. Uh, we do not get together before the show to plan these on the spots. They literally are on the spot. And you'll see the coincidence here. Greg, I've been to your place, so I know that you do not live under a rock. And therefore, I must assume that you have to be aware of the stranglehold that pumpkin spice has on the country this time of year. Since Halloween is just around the corner, we are getting close to peak season. That got me thinking, did you know there are 24 Division Three schools with orange in their color scheme? Between the 24 schools who can realistically dress like a pumpkin on the field. And you got Chapman from Orange, California. And you've got Curry, the closest thing we have to a spice in the school name. There are 25 games in week nine involving this pumpkin spice group. So from this slate of games, I'm going to then ask you to pick five treats. Treats are where pumpkin spice wins. There are five tricks. That's where pumpkin spice loses. And then three smashed pumpkins. These are games that will be decided by 30 points or more. Of course, our prominent teams in orange in Division Three, Greg, they, of course, include Wartburg. They include Wheaton. They include Hobart, UW-Platteville, Hope, Susquehanna, of course. We've got a lot of uh, games to choose from to find me five tricks, five treats, and three smashed pumpkins. And my smashes cannot be the same as treats or tricks. Here we go. I think I'm going to start with the pumpkin smashes. I think that's the best way to go here. 
I think my first pumpkin smash, Pat, I think is going to be Lewis and Clark against Whitworth. I see that Whitworth, of course, coming in unbeaten. Whitworth giving off some good top 25 energy. You're going to have to wait and see how they play against Linfield to see if uh, we can carve out a spot for them. Huh? See what I did there? Ah. Let's see. My next smash is going to go to Kalamazoo, Pat. I think Hope smashes Kalamazoo. That seems reasonable. Hope having a really nice season so far. Back on track this past week after losing to Alma the week before. And in the rear double down and on the spot, Pat, I'm going to go to Gettysburg here. I think Dickinson puts a smash on Gettysburg. All right. Three smashes. Now, uh, well, you can give me tricks or treats next, whichever you like. So we're going to go with five pumpkin-themed teams to win. We're going to go with Susquehanna. Yep, Susquehanna over Moravian is previously discussed that game this week. I am going to take Hobart over St. Lawrence. Picking a W for the Statesman. I will take Heidelberg over Wilmington. Thought that might be a smash. It was on the list. Wheaton over Milliken. Yep. And I will take Wartburg over Central in a key ARC game. All right. Those are my five treats. Yeah. Yes. I have put them in my bag. Thank you. Hopefully they are all Kit Kats or something like that. I love me. Love me a Kit Kat. Mm, absolutely. The fun size, just the two bars. Perfect. Perfect amount. And then five pumpkin tricks. Give me Buffalo State against Ithaca. I think Ithaca plays a trick on Buffalo State. I will take William Patterson as a trick against Christopher Newport. I will take Hendricks as a trick against Barry. I will take Ohio Northern as a trick against Marietta. Pioneers having a very nice season. Indeed. One more trick. I want to take Utica against Brockport. Brockport on my top 25 ballot. I am one of two, I believe. Last week in this space, of course, I challenged Greg to tackle the Moscac teams and give me a nice Moscac stack of teams and games in order of margin of victory. As it turned out, there was a lot of margin of victory before losing teams in Moscac games on Saturday, combined to score just seven points all weekend. Greg's pick for the biggest margin of victory was Mass Dartmouth against Fitchburg State, and UMD won that game by 35 points. Second largest prediction was Western Connecticut against Mass Maritime, and West Con won that by 28 on Friday night. The third largest margin, Greg predicted, was Bridgewater State and Westfield. And Bridgewater, they're the conference leader. They won by 21 points. But then there's the game we haven't mentioned, Plymouth State and Worcester State. Greg picked this to be the closest game. Instead, it was a 28-point margin of victory for Plymouth, playing a little bit of Jenga on Greg's stack. I was so close, Pat. I was so close. I like that you're going to hang on to Moscac. We're going to make that a thing. I like it. Let's do it. In last week's On the Spot, I asked Pat to play a little over-under with national statistical leaders. I set the mark for Garrett Cora rush yards at 175, and the Franklin running back netted 134 yards rushing for an under. That's a win for Pat. Oop. I set the mark for Jake Breitbach receptions at 10.5, and Breitbach caught exactly 10 passes for another under winner. Really wish they would. They, he was open on the last play. They should have gone to him. <laughs> and I said Hendricks QB 
Jacob Buniff's passing yards at 350 and Buniff finished with 274 yards while missing the final three drives for Hendricks. That's another under winner. Pat took all three unders and sweeps on the spot. I had to go out and run a few errands and do some things in the middle of the day on Saturday. And I'm listening to the St. John's Gustavus game in the car because that's a thing that you can do, right? And all I'm begging for is like, tell me how many catches Breitbach has. That's the most important thing to me, of course. And by the skin of my teeth, I get that one. Last week in quick hits, our upset picks were wrong. All wrong. That includes those of us who picked none, which makes sense because, you know, once the place gets popular, it immediately gets too crowded. Greg picked lacrosse. So close. Ryan picked Harden Simmons. Not not close. But in the end, nobody picked St. John's. Even Frank's kind of half pick. Well, I'd watch Muhlenberg at Dickinson. That didn't pan out because that was a three score game for more than half of the contest. I asked whose bubbles would pop and the crew had a little more success here. The Hobart Union game was popular as a Pool C elimination game. Frank and Logan ended up on the same side of the argument there, picking Union to eliminate Hobart. Riley picked UW Oshkosh, although they may have been eliminated already. Pat picked Washington and Jefferson to lose to Carnegie Mellon, and Greg took Wash U to lose to North Central. You like my use of words there, I could tell. The Greg took on the spot into the quick hits averse as he asked the panel to pick a game where the winner has the less fierce mascot. That is by far the most efficient way to say that. So thank you for uh, writing that question that way. It makes so much more sense this way. Greg was right to pick the Central Dutch over in the Nebraska Wesleyan Prairie Wolves. I took the Johns Hopkins Blue Jays over the Ursinus Bears. Ryan took the Muhlenberg Mules over the Dickinson Red Devils. Frank and Ryan each took the Washington Elite Generals over the Hampton City Tigers. And Logan took the Illinois College Blue Boys over the Lawrence Vikings. And he made hilarious references in the process. Seriously, you should go back and read Quick Hits Week 8 if you haven't already. And finally, the question was asked as to who would be in first place in the HCAC after Saturday's games. And the correct answer turned out to be Mount St. Joseph and Rose Holman. Everybody got that right except for me, Pat. I knew I was going to go contrarian on that with the Franklin upset pick. Didn't quite pan out. This was the Around the Nation podcast number 339, released on October 23rd of 2023. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for all those features. It's defense week here at d3football.com. We're very thankful for the support of our monthly Patreon subscribers. You can join them or learn more about it by visiting patreon.com slash d3sports. Or if you feel like you're the kind of person who might give us a one-time donation, go to d3sports.com slash help. If you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, tell a fellow alumnus about the show. Give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts if that's something you're interested in doing. That is really something that helps the algorithm push it in front of other people. I'm pretty sure it does the same on Spotify. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on the X platform using the D3FB hashtag. I post from at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. You can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Patrick Coleman. Podcast is written by Patrick Coleman and Greg Thomas. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well. That on-the-spot track that everybody loves to get stuck in their head. Yeah, you can find that on DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Peter Haugen for joining us. Keith McMillan was our OG host, the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com. 
And Greg Thomas is that guy now, and he is our co-host, and I'm very thankful for you being here, Greg. Greg, I went back and dug into an old podcast to find a kind of cryptic reference that I mentioned on social media a couple of weeks ago, and I ran into a podcast that Frank had subbed in for Keith because Keith fell asleep while writing it and never showed up to record, so I am super thankful that... You have never missed a recording session, and I'm sure that being two hours earlier doesn't hurt. Yeah, that's definitely a time zone helper. Can't promise that that would not have ever happened to me were I still on the East Coast. The funny thing about that podcast is Keith had basically written the entire podcast already, and we were doing it the same way we do now with a shared, you know, kind of cloud document. And Frank was able to just step in and play Keith, except, you know, more like a corner rather than a safety, if you know what I mean. Picking up what you're laying down. See, there you go. That's what you get an hour or so into the podcast. You learn that Frank read Keith's script that one time. We need somebody with the, uh, you know, the, the stadium sign, the D and the white picket fence. We need that this week somewhere. For defense week? I haven't seen that in a stadium in a while. I think that's a classic that never never goes bad. We need to bring that back. I bet you your pointy, sharp sticks on your fence are no longer able to get through most uh, stadium security protocols. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time. 